Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Sonia. And I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, New Perspectives in the Treatment of Peripheral T-Cell Lymphoma, or PTCL. Very important program. We have wonderful speakers on our program today to address this incredibly important topic. Um, and uh, Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations as well as blood cancer organizations. And really because of that collaboration, we have so many of you on the call today. We have over 254 participants on the call today, so there are lots of you on the call from all different parts of the United States from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have a number of international participants from Canada, Croatia, Egypt, France, Israel, Laos, Spain, UK, and Venezuela. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And uh, today's program um, is supported by Seattle Genetics, and I'd like to thank them for their support of the program today. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I'm going to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Stephen Ansel, and Dr. Ansel is Professor of Medicine, Mayo Clinic College of Medicine, Consultant, Division of Hematology, Department of Internal Medicine, Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Ansel will be addressing overview of peripheral T-cell lymphoma, PTCL, in the context of COVID-19, types of peripheral T-cell lymphoma, current standard of care, and new treatment approaches. It really is my great uh, privilege to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ansel. Carolyn, thank you very much and uh, very honored to be on the program and uh, grateful for everybody who's called in. So um, as mentioned, my charge today is to give us an overview of peripheral T-cell lymphoma, have folks understand exactly what it is, talk a little bit more about the different types, and then talk about the standard of care and new treatment approaches um, and try and do this also with a reference to the context of uh, COVID-19. So I think it's important for us to start off saying, what exactly is peripheral T-cell lymphoma? And I think it's important to understand that in your body, patients and people have uh, lymphocytes, and lymphocytes are part of the, immune's the immune system's response to various infections. And there are two kinds of lymphocytes. There are B lymphocytes, whose job it is predominantly to make antibodies, and T lymphocytes, whose job it is to predominantly directly target virally infected cells and other kind of threats. So one can have a change in those cells, a malignant change, where there is a genetic mistake that is made in the cells, and when that happens, cells then start making copies of, each, of themselves, and when they do that, that turns into a cancer problem called lymphoma. And you can get predominant, uh, you can get B-cell lymphomas, which is the predominant type, approximately 90% of lymphomas are B-cell lymphomas. And then as we're talking about today, about 10% of lymphomas are T-cell lymphomas. What's interesting about T-cell lymphomas is there can be a variety of different types, and they can be in a variety of different locations. So peripheral T-cell lymphoma really talks about the lymphomas that are predominantly in organs, not so much in the skin, which would be predominantly a cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. 
So specifically talking about peripheral T-cell lymphomas and the different types, with all the different types that are uh, potentially uh, identifiable within the, the classification of lymphomas, I find it helpful to think about uh, peripheral T-cell lymphomas in three categories. There's the first type, which is really a nodal type of lymphoma, and that means that it's mainly lymph nodes that become enlarged when one gets this disease. Then there can be uh, patients who develop a blood form uh, of the peripheral T-cell lymphoma, and this is usually the acute T-cell leukemia lymphoma type, and that's where the cells are predominantly circulating in the peripheral blood. And then thirdly, there is a population of, of patients that can get a variety of different T-cell lymphomas, and these can affect uh, extranodal sites outside of the lymph nodes, and often uh, areas like the nose and upper air airways, the liver, uh, the spleen, sometimes uh, the bone marrow, sometimes the bowel, and these are a, a cluster of different, usually less common types of lymphoma in extranodal and outside of the lymph node spaces. I think, though, that when we're talking about peripheral T-cell lymphoma, most patients present with lymph node involvement, and often these land in three groups, a peripheral T-cell lymphoma without other specifications or unspecified, <clears throat> a type that's called angiomenoblastic T-cell lymphoma, and then a type that is specific because it, there's positive, positivity on the outside of the cells for CD30, and that's called anaplastic large-cell lymphoma. So what I want folks to hear is that this is a cancer of lymphocytes, typically involves the lymph nodes, and can have a variety of different types. So one of the things that's very important is when the diagnosis is being made that a pathologist, an expert pathologist, reviews the slides to ensure that the diagnosis is accurate. So with that in mind and the different types that exist, treatment is often driven then by exactly what type of lymphoma is identified. And I would say one thinks about this in two dis distinct uh, groups. One group where it has a very unique histology, in other words, the way it looks under the microscope, has a very specific finding. And because of that, it requires very specific treatment. And that often has to do with its location, where it is, and the actual characteristics of the cells. And the specific management that is often given is if the cell has a CD30 protein on the outside, we will typically add a treatment such as brentuximabidotin. If the cells are more NK, natural killer T cells, those may require the addition of radiation therapy. Sometimes there may be a more aggressive outcome associated with the subtype of lymphoma, and those may be patients where we would consider adding a stem cell transplant as part of the process if they get initial treatment and get into remission. All told, though, I think it's important to, again, just hear the message that T-cell lymphoma, because there are many different types, making a definitive diagnosis is absolutely critical so that one then selects the right treatment that is specific to the type of disease one has. So what was the most standard type of treatment? And I would say, again, for the most common type of, lymph of peripheral T-cell lymphoma, often the type that involves the lymph nodes. For many years, the CHOP chemotherapy, which is a four-drug combination, has really been the standard approach uh, for, for patients. As patients uh, uh, were treated with this therapy, we've never been very satisfied with the results. We're always looking for better results. So in younger patients, the addition of a, an additional drug called etoposide was often added into the combination. But recent data has shown that if any of the cells inside the biopsy 
show this protein CD30 on the surface. The addition of an antibody drug conjugate called brentuximab vidotin has been very valuable because the combination of brentuximab vidotin plus the chemotherapy backbone, the CHOP part, but with the vincristine omitted, has actually been shown to be better as far as the progression-free survival and the overall survival of patients who received that treatment. So the standard practice is if there is any degree of CD30 expression in the biopsies, that would be the standard of care. For the remaining patients, using a CHOP-based treatment or CHOP plus etoposide would be the standard treatment. You're going to hear more from uh, Dr. Horwitz about new drugs under uh, investigation and clinical trials that are testing these new agents. But should the disease give trouble after initial treatments, often additional drugs would be used. And these are often in the categories uh, of uh, treatments that target various proteins in the cells and treatments such as pralotrexate, uh, romadepsin, uh, bolinostat are all agents that are very commonly used as additional treatment for patients if the disease returns. As a final point, just to say, well, what about the whole context of the COVID-19 infection and what we've been doing relative uh, to managing patients in this environment? I think the important thing to know is that peripheral T-cell lymphoma can be quite aggressive, often causes a lot of difficulty for patients and progresses uh, quickly if untreated. So we've typically uh, moved ahead with treatment very similar to what we did even prior to COVID-19. There are times where we've become a little less aggressive in our visits and to hospital to limit exposures have been in patients that are already in remission and are being followed up. But while patients are on active treatment, we've really encouraged them to get their treatment as they have before because our goal is to get the disease under good control and have it stay that, that way for the long term. Additionally, in people that have got chemotherapy and have had a good response and have required the stem cell transplant option, those patients, we've also gone ahead with uh, doing that because we felt that the benefit for patients uh, is outweighed, uh, uh, outweighs the potential risk of COVID-19 because we wanted to ensure that patients, again, would have the best outcome for the long term. So what do I hope you heard from this very brief overview of peripheral T-cell lymphoma? It's a cancer of lymphocytes, T-lymphocytes specifically. There are lots of different types. Standard chemotherapy, uh, sometimes with brentuximab vidotin and sometimes with a stem cell transplant, would be the initial treatment for many patients. Sometimes there may need to be a unique approach, depending if you have an unusual type of lymphoma. But all told, uh, there are other additional options that you'll hear more about in subsequent uh, presentations coming up right after this that are also being investigated. So with that, I'll thank you for listening and turn it back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Ansel. That was really outstanding and uh, lots of wonderful information that really set the whole context for today's program. And I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. So thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Stephen Horwitz, and Dr. Horwitz is Associate Attending Physician, Lymphoma Service, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He's also Associate Professor of Medicine, Law Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Horwitz will be addressing treatments under investigation, updates on clinical trials, how clinical trials contribute to your treatment options, practical tips to manage side effects and symptoms, and follow-up care. It's now, now really my great privilege to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Horowitz. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Um, it, it is a, a pleasure and an honor to be with this group. And um, 
um, nice to talk about um, some things other than COVID-19 these days. So um, I I'm going to pick up where Steve left off, Steve Antle left off, and talk a little bit about some of the uh, treatments under investigation, some of the new treatments, and how we think about that, as well as some other topics. So um, I would say right now there are many, many new therapies and strategies being investigated in T-cell lymphoma. And I think where you heard that often the initial treatments may involve chemotherapy, most or many of the new treatments that we look at are different than, um, than traditional chemotherapies or what we call traditional cytotoxic chemotherapies. And, and that doesn't mean that they don't have side effects or that there aren't risks, um, but there are many different ways of approaching uh, treating cancers in general and treating T-cell uh, treating lymphomas. I think when I'm trying to explain this in a broad way, um, in my mind, the, the new treatments kind of fall into two or three basic groups. Um, there's a number of what we call targeted therapies that sort of target what I would describe as the cellular machinery. So Steve Ansel mentioned that, you know, that uh, uh, the cancer cells are, are, are a group of, in T-cell lymphoma, a group of cancerous uh, T-cells. And true in T-cell lymphoma as well as cancers in general, Usually, if a, if a cell is a cancer cell, that means there's something sort of fundamentally wrong with it, that they either grow abnormally, they divide too much, so you accumulate too many of those cells, where normal cells only grow when they're supposed to and die off when they're supposed to, or the cells don't die normally. Uh, they may be uh, live too long or, or not die at all, so just over time, you accumulate these different cells. And as the biology, understanding what the sort of defects are in the cells that lead to one or both of those things, there's a lot of drugs um, that can sort of target those things going on inside the cells. And I won't get into details about the specific types, but they're often what we would call inhibitors. They inhibit different pathways inside the cells, or again, the messages that are going on inside the cells that make them grow too much or not die normally. Some of the classes you may hear about are things like CI3 kinase or JAK-STAT or IPK. And those are really just shorthand names for some of the things inside the cells. And more and more, um, we're able to understand what those abnormalities are and more and more find drugs that can kind of mess up that message. Often these are pill drugs. Often these drugs um, uh, have different side effects than traditional chemotherapies. They less often cause things like hair loss or nausea or vomiting. And more and more, these are being incorporated into our treatments for T-cell lymphomas. I think there's other groups of drugs that also sort of mess up the way the cells grow. And these are drugs that are sometimes, you know, the technical term is epigenetic modifiers. Um, and if you hear that term, but it really means is that, that um, the way these drugs are behaving is sort of messed up and inappropriate and causing problems. And a lot of that comes from the DNA or the genes or, or the messages uh, that the cell is sending to itself in terms of how to grow and divide. And there's a bunch of drugs that we use called cystone deacetylase inhibitors or hypomethylating agents, but there are another group of drugs that are often pill drugs, uh, not uh, sometimes intravenous, that can again be used effectively for T-cell lymphomas, both um, conventionally and then there's a number of new therapies in that category. So a lot of those are new medicines that uh, we and many others are studying and uh, increasing the number of options for people with T-cell lymphoma. I think the other broad category that we think about that, that you probably hear about a lot just in cancer in general is immune therapies or cellular therapies, things called CAR T cells or ways of getting the body's immune system or working with the immune system to fight the cancer cells. And this is a, a, a wholly different way of approaching it than chemotherapy. And we know from other diseases, particularly from uh, B cell lymphomas, um, that even when many chemotherapies don't work, sometimes cellular therapy 
uh, can be very effective uh, for T-cell lymphomas. In a very extreme way, a bone marrow transplant from another person is a very broad or uh, intensive way of giving an immune system with cellular therapy. So we get a lot of questions from patients about CAR T-cells because CAR T-cells have really um, um, changed the way a, a lot of people with aggressive B-cell lymphomas are treated. And because it has the name T in it, a lot of our patients ask about it. And what CAR T-cells basically are, are a way of taking some of the body's normal T-cells, which, as Steve mentioned, are part of the immune system. They can fight cancers and infections, and re-engineering or teaching those T-cells to attack a cancer. And again, that's mostly been attacking B-cell lymphomas. The studies doing this to fight T-cell lymphomas are just starting. So there are clinical trials really just starting this year, and there'll be more next year, looking at these strategies to try to teach the body's immune system to fight T-cell lymphomas. It's a little more complicated uh, for T-cell lymphomas than for other cancers because you're <clears throat> basically trying to get the good T-cells to fight the bad T-cells, and that gets into some technical issues like how does the body know the good from the bad? Are there things about the bad features that are not on the good cells so they don't fight each other? Um, I think the other thing that we see for that is, uh, again, using the comparison of B-cell lymphomas, we know for a long time treating B-cell lymphomas that you can get rid of the body's normal B-cells for quite a long time and that's relatively safe. The immune system can still function um, uh, good enough in most cases. <clears throat> that's probably not true for T-cell lymphomas. So a lot of strategies are being done if we're going to attack T-cells broadly. Are there ways to make that therapy go away, to save some of the good T-cells, to spare some of the good T-cells? But a lot of centers are really actively working on this. And those clinical trials, again, are just starting, and I think will be more and more available. I think the other uh, uh, ways that the immune system is being harnessed is, again, things that you may hear about called checkpoint inhibitors or a lot of cancers, uh, really many, many cancers, including lung cancer and melanoma, are now standardly treated with medicines that activate good T-cells to fight the cancer. Those studies have, again, been a little more complicated in T-cell lymphomas because you're trying to activate the good T-cells and not activate the bad T-cells. But those studies are underway and some of those therapies are available. And for some very specific types of T-cell lymphoma, like something called NK T-cell lymphoma, which is a rare form of T-cell lymphoma that often, often starts in the nose or the nasopharynx, some of those drugs have been very effective. In other cases, it looks like those drugs have caused faster growth of the T-cell lymphoma, and there's other ways of trying to address that. There's strategies to activate other parts of the immune system, so other immune cells that are T-cells, like macrophages. You may hear about something called a CD47, just other ways of getting the immune system to mobilize against the cancer cells. And what we're learning is that in certain cases, these therapies can be effective even when standard chemotherapies or other treatments haven't, and they work in very different ways. So I think those are things, if you're looking at clinical trials or new treatments, will be more and more available uh, in more and more places. Um, and, of course, combinations. As we develop new treatments, um, often we look at how we could combine those new treatments with standard treatments to try to even get more potent or more active or more aggressive therapies, more, more effective therapies. And those are other clinical trials that you may see looking at combinations of drugs where the drugs aren't brand new, uh, but adding them together may be new. Um, so I think in a sense that can really be, you know, I don't want to say exciting because I think having a T-cell lymphoma is not exciting. It's scary and it's super hard. But I think um, it's reassuring that there's more and more options and there may be more treatments available. Um, you know, sometimes we just think um, the more shots on goal you get, the more chances we have to find a therapy that works well, the better off we're going to find one or multiple treatments to really get the disease better or, or at a minimum keep it under control for a long time. 
Um, I think when uh, transitioning a little to um, um, when you're considering a, a clinical trial or how do you use clinical trials as part of your care or how do we incorporate clinical trials into, into uh, how we take care of patients, you know, for a rare disease like T-cell lymphomas where we have some but not completely effective therapies, uh, for us, using clinical trials are really a fundamental or a daily part of the way we help take care of patients. Participation in a clinical trial is always voluntary, um, but it does for someone facing a, a T-cell lymphoma, does add some increased options or increased alternatives or more options, and, uh, and sometimes that, that can really uh, be needed. Um, again, it's hard having a disease that's rare and uncommon, um, but it also means that your doctors are, are frequently looking for better ways uh, to treat these lymphomas. Um, so again, at a minimum, clinical trials give you more options or more things to try to treat the lymphoma. I would say a little different in T-cell lymphomas than some other cancers is that in, in many more common cancers, there may be a standard way people are treated, and we only go or consider clinical trials after the standard treatments have been tried or multiply tried or exhausted. And I think for some of these rare diseases, including T-cell lymphoma, we sometimes think about new medicines very early on or, or even before you've had all the standard options. And some of those things can be like, again, like Steve mentioned, adding brentuximab to dotin to chemotherapy was a clinical trial, adding a new drug to a standard treatment. And in the end, that showed that that was more helpful than, than not adding the new drug. And then that sort of uh, uh, became a standard uh, treatment. Um, we know for first-line therapy or initial therapy, people are cured sometimes with strong combinations of chemotherapy or even bone marrow stem cell transplant. When we say the word cure, we mean goes away and never comes back. So that's a pretty powerful thing. So a lot of the clinical trials you might see for your first go-around in treatment might be a standard treatment like chemotherapy with something new added to it. And that's just a way of trying to make standard uh, therapies uh, better. If the lymphoma has come back or not gone away with initial therapy, then there's really a lot of things on the table. There's some approved medicines that Steve mentioned, like pralotrexate, romadepsin, belinostat, or brentuximabidotin. And then there's a bunch of new medicines and new strategies that can be used before, after, instead of, sometimes uh, in addition to. So I think, you know, we really look at clinical trials as part of the way we best take care of people. Um, when you're considering a clinical trial, and again, that's always an option. You really need to be informed. I think it's helpful for you to know what is known about the drug and what's not known about the drug. Is this something we have a lot of experience with? Is this something brand new? Um, how well has it worked in others, or is that not known? I think what are the goals of the treatment is really important. Do we think this is going to get the disease better for some period of time? Do we think this would have a chance of uh, getting rid of the disease um, long-term? Um, how is the trial set up? you take it for a certain period of time and then stop, or many new drugs for T-cell lymphoma, some of the inhibitors that I talked about, we give into what we call progression or intolerance. And that basically means if the medicine is working and you feel okay, you stay on as long as, you're, as, long as it's controlling the disease. And sometimes that's months or sometimes that, that could be years. And I think it's good to understand um, before you start a trial sort of what's the short term uh, and what's the long term essential to making any decision about clinical trial or what are the alternatives? If I didn't do this, what else could I get? And what does that drug look like? Or what does that treatment look like in terms of side effects, in terms of how well it works? Really, all these decisions are, are, are based on the alternatives. And you really need that information uh, to make the best decisions for yourself. Again, working hand in hand with your doctor uh, or your uh, care team. 
Uh, so I think it's asking a lot of questions, making sure you really understand everything you feel you need to understand before making that, uh, that decision. Um, I think in terms of thinking a little bit about COVID, you know, that's been a struggle with clinical trials because sometimes clinical trials require more frequent visits or, uh, to the center, and certainly in the spring in New York, we were really trying to minimize any treatments. I think one of the things we've learned is that probably the safest thing for a person with T-cell lymphoma during COVID is to have their T-cell lymphoma under good control so you don't add worsening cancer to also to the risk of COVID. So more and more, we're trying to keep people on standard therapies that are working. Sometimes for a clinical trial, that may mean more frequent visits early on. But if it's a, a pill medicine, that may mean in two or three or four months, if the drug is working okay, you may not need to come as often as if you were on, for instance, a weekly intravenous therapy. And those are some of the more uh, additional pieces of information that we think about when considering uh, these options. Um, again, it's always a personal decision, um, but something that I think you can really talk to your healthcare team about. I was also asked to talk a little bit about practical tips to manage side effects and symptoms. I think for something like T-cell lymphoma, this is a hard thing to do quickly because there's so many different treatments, and each treatment and each person has its own sort of individual um, groups of side effects or, or risks. But I think it's important that you're informed about those side effects. I think it's important that you know when you should call. Are there certain things that would be considered an emergency you should call right away? Are there certain things that just go away with time? Uh, have a conversation with how do you get a hold of your healthcare team? If it's a weekend or at night, um, are there medicines I could have at home to take in case this happened or this happened? And try to, uh, you know, have as much open communication uh, as possible. I think other things that are helpful knowing about side effects are these side effects that tend to come and go. Like with every cycle of chemotherapy, people may get low blood counts, that that would recover, where for some medicines that cause nerve injury, that may be something that could slowly get worse. Uh, over repeated courses of treatment, just so you have a sense of an expectation or know uh, 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 what to expect. Um, Andre's going to talk about telemedicine, so I won't go too far there, but I will say that as a physician, it's a little harder on telemedicine to get a full sense of how the person is. We don't see you walk into the room. We don't see how you move. It is nice to see people with their families in their kitchens and things like that. I think that's a perk, but I think it's more incumbent upon the patient to really tell us how they're feeling and what's going on because we don't quite get all the same information uh, uh, over the phone or over video as if we're sitting in the room with you. And then lastly, I'll just follow up with follow-up care. Again, this is also really individualized based on what's going on. For many of our patients with T-cell lymphoma, they're on long-term treatment to control the disease. And those are people where the follow-up care is really just part of, of ongoing care. We see them regularly and check on them regularly, do periodic scans um, and blood tests. For people who may be cured or who are in long-term remission, with these rare diseases, we still really like to keep track of them, but it may be less frequently. It may not always require scans, but maybe just to check in every now and then to see how they're doing. Because I think for these rare diseases, we're learning too, it, you know, as, as, as we have a, a good experience with these, but these are not super common. So there's things we're really learning all the time. So again, I just circle back to um, communicate, stay in touch. You're not bothering your doctor. If you have questions or concerns, we want you to be well. And if there's things we need to know to help keep you well, you know, I think we want to know that you're, you know, patients always ask, am I, am I asking too many questions? The answer is if you have questions, then you haven't asked too many questions. Um, so I'll just uh, wrap up there and happy to take some questions at the end and hand it back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Horowitz. That was really outstanding and um, a lot of things to be able to think about. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. So thank you so much. And uh, thanks. Thanks. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Andre Shustov. Dr. Shustov is physician, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. 
Associate Professor, Division of Medical Oncology, University of Washington School of Medicine, Associate Professor, Clinical Research Division, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. And Dr. Shostov is going to be addressing the increasing role of telehealth telemedicine appointments to reduce your exposure to COVID-19, guidelines to prepare for telehealth medicine, telehealth telemedicine appointments to get the most out of these appointments, key questions to ask your healthcare team, and communicating with the healthcare team about your quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Shustov. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Welcome, everyone. It's a great pleasure to be here today and being able to reach out to so many patients around the country and sounds like globally, and also share this presentation with my esteemed colleagues, um, Dr. Nsell and Dr. Horvitz. Today, I will talk about... Um, the profound effect uh, that uh, coronavirus infection or epidemic um, in the United States and globally um, had on our uh, community of patients, uh, careful and former uh, patients, PTCL patients, and how we um, adopted to modify approaches to keep our patients safe and maximize um, our care in this um, uh, critical uh, situation. The specifics of cancer care uh, in the setting of COVID infection for lymphoma patients is uh, amplified by the fact that lymphomas are cancers of the immune system. As Dr. Ansel pointed out, these are cancers of the very cells that help us fight infection on a daily basis or even help our bodies to fight our own cancers. So the treatments that have been designed and um, evolved over the past half a century, even novel therapies that we try to uh, modify and uh, improve full lymphoma treatment uh, are going to affect normal immune cells. The more effective chemotherapy regimen is uh, curing lymphoma or treating lymphoma, it is probably going to increase the risk that it will uh, further have impact on normal immune cells. So patients with lymphomas uh, even before treatment, but especially after studying therapy for their lymphoma, have particularly high risk of uh, uh, regular or very unusual infections. So uh, patients with lymphomas are um, uh, particularly uh, educated, and uh, we put extra effort to uh, prevent infections even before the epidemic happened. Uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic has certainly stressed the entire system, and we had to, uh, as I mentioned, to bring a lot of adaptations to our care. One of the modifications that uh, was um, brought in in majority, if not all of the states, is telemedicine. Telemedicine is not something new uh, in uh, healthcare in the United States, and it was available in very small patient populations before, specifically those with uh, um, Medicare and those with disabilities. However, most of the states passed emergency bills early this year to open this uh, up for um, pretty much all of the patients to help healthcare and patients in the setting of COVID. So what is telemedicine? First of all, it's important to understand that telemedicine visits are not a substitute for a life encounter. As Dr. Horvitz pointed out, it is so important for physicians to uh, see and hear uh, the patient uh, in the live encounter. As we always say, put your hands on the patient and uh, listen and appreciate how patients answer questions. And just to kind of uh, give you inside a look in medicine, we have this thing we call for, um, the visual assessment. And it is uh, true as 
strange as it sounds, that just by walking into the patient room, looking at the patient and saying hello, uh, you can immediately say that uh, there is something wrong or patient is doing really well. Um, and uh, this is not possible during the telemedicine encounter. Having said that, we have made uh, everything possible to maximize the information and the quality of the encounter we can have through um, audio-video uh, platforms. Secondly, it is very important to also appreciate that telemedicine requires two channels of communication, and both of them have to be present. One is audio and one is video. And it puts uh, particular challenges on, on the encounter that I will um, mention in a second. But uh, make sure that you understand that uh, just having a phone conversation or losing video and not having a video encounter or vice versa uh, does not constitute a appropriate visit. So preparing for telemedicine appointment, it's very important to communicate in advance with your healthcare team. And most of the time, I hope that uh, your care team takes 90% uh, of that burden preparing. The clinics would contact you and set up the appointment via uh, sending you email. And uh, you have to have an appropriate device. And uh, luckily, in, in 2020, uh, most of us will have uh, at least one kind of um, smartphone or iPad or computer that's capable of um, managing the, um, the software called Zoom. And a lot of you, I'm sure, if not everybody familiar with these platforms, uh, remember that this is a real medicine appointment. It has to meet the, to meet the absolute highest standards of uh, uh, patient uh, information privacy. So you have to have devices capable of handling the, the latest technology uh, for that reason. I always recommend to patients that uh, you have at least one alternative device. Uh, sometimes it's not possible, but you have a self, if you have a cell phone, you have a computer, uh, make sure that there is an opportunity to switch if something goes wrong. Make sure that you check your Wi-Fi connection uh, the day before and you have good access to Wi-Fi because it requires the high-speed communication uh, between devices and encryption, etc. And frequently, uh, interruptions during the telemedicine appointments can throw entire encounter and uh, make it uh, much less effective. I also suggest to patients that their family members uh, present during these appointments, just like you have uh, encounters in clinic. Uh, it's uh, sometimes easy and faster to fix problems when you have your um, other uh, family members there uh, and uh, to facilitate that. Make sure that you have your um, identification uh, with you. Uh, it is required by law by majority of the states that you present your physician via camera with your driver's license or passport or um, other uh, recognizable um, uh, IDs. And uh, once the uh, encounter is established, it's very important that um, you have uh, prepared all of your questions and information uh, because uh, the fact that um, we do have, interestingly, much less time, even uh, less than clinic, to uh, communicate between myself and the patients um, uh, due to this uh, new um, uh, unusual circumstances. And if something goes wrong, we lose time. And sometimes it takes uh, initial five, ten minutes to connect or reconnect. So be prepared and have your questions laid out. I also would like to um, go uh, really quickly over um, kind of uh, basic uh, questions about telemedicine, why, how, and who and when uh, should use this opportunity. 
while telemedicine introduced a fantastic uh, opportunity for patients uh, to connect with their physician or consulting physician without having to travel, uh, say, a couple hours and, uh, and sit in traffic and park and pay for those things and drive back home in traffic, it also uh, carries the uh, risk of um, uh, not being able to communicate very important health-related um, issues. So when I think about telemedicine and who should and uh, should not do it, first of all, um, I recommend and advise patients to never use this platform with uh, new symptoms. If you have any new developments during your lymphoma treatment, uh, say you have a new cough or a new lymph node or you have new couple of bruises, or you have uh, new fevers. These are new developments that absolutely have to be evaluated in life encounter. I need to listen to your lungs. I need to look at the lymph nodes because there are so many things that uh, can go wrong during telemedicine and information can be missed. Uh, I typically reserve uh, telemedicine encounters for patients who are uh, what we call stable or established treatment, say they're on single-agent medication. They've been getting this medication for, say, past um, three, four, five months, and nothing is changing. The labs are stable. And this kind of encounters are probably appropriate for telemedicine, um, as well as uh, those visits where you come and see your doctor, say, every three months for lab check or um, CT scan review without any new symptoms. I also do not like doing telemedicine uh, encounters for patients who come every six months or every 12 months because it means that then I won't see my patients for another six months in a live encounter. So there is a happy medium where it is a routine follow-up, but still you see patients frequently enough that I'm not worried about missing something in the long term. Uh, there is some bonus in telemedicine platform that patients now have more access to uh, consultants and uh, expertise centers, uh, especially important for T-cell lymphomas that are so rare and is so important, in my opinion, at least to um, at least once or a couple of times uh, see uh, lymphoma physicians who specialize in this disease. So this opened up the possibility for patients to reach out to experts even across state lines. There might be some limitations, agreements between states, um, but uh, you need to check with your primary um, doctor if uh, this is possible. Um, I will also point out a little bit of the other side of telemedicine stress. Um, uh, I would say that try to be very conscious about um, how many times you try to reach your doctor through telemedicine, especially important for uh, consulting uh, services. We uh, sometimes come into situations where um, uh, in academic medicine now we obviously provide a lot of consultative support for a lot of physicians uh, in our state and the country, and such an easy access creates the um, uh, creates the thinking that now I can reach the consultant on a weekly basis or every other week or much more frequently than usual. Uh, the problem becomes that um, on the receiving side, we sometimes cannot accommodate so many visits. So try to use your telemedicine um, appointments or opportunities wisely and um, in, in a reasonable frequency. One thing I also point out, because it came, came up very quickly, at least in my practice, if you guys get admitted to the hospital, um, it alleviates uh, the um, telemedicine visit in your clinic. Your doctor can always call you in the hospital or call the hospital team, but um, remember the telemedicine visit is 
a uh, real medical encounter, and while you're admitted to the hospital, you cannot see a doctor in a clinic at the same time. So I, I have a lot of, not a lot, but occasionally patients get frustrated not understanding this. I always call my patients in the hospital, so uh, in my clinic, the situation does not come up very often. But uh, remember, this is a real medical encounter. Um, so let's see. Uh, the questions that uh, I would encourage you to ask your provider, whether it's telemedicine visit or uh, you see your uh, primary care team in life encounter, uh, try to always have the vision about overall treatment plan. It is so important to know uh, where where we're going with the entire uh, management plan in the long term. It's so easy to get lost in day-to-day uh, transfusions and uh, growth factor shots and discussion of side effects and that um, you lose that sense of direction and uh, how many cycles I'm going to get, how long is going to continue. And is this going to keep my disease in remission or in control? Are we trying to cure it? So this overall goal of treatment has to come through uh, pretty much almost every appointment because it allows you to make informed decision on a daily basis. Uh, Check with your doctor or your care team every time whether the treatment has changed or their vision or their goals for treatment have changed again, because it's so easy to um, get uh, consumed with day-to-day issues. Please ask your care team and your doctors how long the treatment is going to be. As Dr. Horvitz has mentioned, there are different uh, objectives. There are different goals of therapy. Uh, On one side, some of the lymphomas we try to cure and we go for intensive short-term treatments uh, with the reward that afterwards we're hoping lymphoma will never come back. On the other hand, there are um, a whole different platform where we manage lymphomas now as a chronic disease. And uh, it, beca- it is becoming more and more successful in some situations. But then treatment would continue either for many months, many years, or maybe indefinitely. Just um, ask your doctor about their vision and your vision if, if they are aligned. Ask your team about risk of admissions, risk of blood transfusions, and also whether the treatments that you're making decision on are going to have impact on your quality of life. Sometimes if missed in a discussion, patients are surprised that they say they cannot travel or they cannot see their grandkids. So please ask all those questions because it's so important for you to decide um, what kind of um, uh, treatment you would prefer. Um, Ask your team about how much help you're going to need. Frequently, patients are really surprised after starting therapy how debilitated uh, they are and how much uh, help they need in even things like transportation and going to uh, to grocery store uh, or other things that come as granted on a daily basis but uh, come as a surprise when chemotherapy or anti-lymphoma treatment uh, has certain side effects. Always ask about clinical trials. As Dr. Horvitz pointed out, this uh, gives you um, access to potentially amazing new treatments that uh, might be more sophisticated than our traditional uh, classic chemotherapy type way before, sometimes years before it becomes available. We monitor uh, patients so carefully and try to do everything possible to make new treatments uh, or treatments under investigation as safe as possible. So there is really 
more benefit than uh, risk in some situations or in many situations to at least discuss and consider clinical trials because the standard treatment will always be there. Clinical trials might close soon or patients may become ineligible. So there might be a window of opportunity rather than always being available. Always ask your doctor and re keep re-asking your doctor about other options. Uh, sometimes I hear that uh, patients come from um, other uh, for consultations from other states or other um, oncologists, and they only aware of one possible treatment and never been discussed that oh there is there is an alternative, there is another treatment, there is another approach uh, to myeloma. So all of those questions are so important uh, to discuss not only at the initial encounter, but uh, also um, as uh, you start receiving treatment on a regular basis. Uh, quality of life issues. Uh, extremely important to communicate with your uh, care team. And I would first uh, point out that this type of uh, discussions and uh, questions frequently get forgotten because we are obviously so consumed with making sure we pick the best treatment uh, to shrink the lymph nodes, treat the lymphoma, the cure lymphoma, that quality of life gets forgotten. And the best way to communicate this, uh, honestly, is actually uh, communicate through your nurse or a nurse practitioner, it's so uh, often that uh, doctors are running behind and they're um, uh, 30, 40 minutes late to your appointment and they try to focus as much as possible on uh, issues at hand, meaning your chemotherapy regimen, the side effect that you're getting, and make sure we don't miss uh, very important, dangerous things. And by the time this is all addressed, uh, oops, time is up. And um, we forget to ask patients whether you have the opportunity to um, take little walks or travel or uh, do you have pain or do you have um, um, uh, any kind of activities that you uh, like doing before you start a treatment. Very, very important. Also remember that uh, once we get into the treatment, both patients and physicians, it's so easy to get kind of used to all the side effects and get used to the idea that, well, I have to go through this because I have cancer. Um, I, I think this, uh, this is um, a kind of a trap that we set for ourselves because uh, then the whole idea of palliative treatment or non-curative content treatment that is to facilitate best quality of life is, um, is being um, compromised. So always reference yourself to what did you do and how did you do before the treatment started or even before the lymphoma was diagnosed and compare this to uh, what's happening today. So all of those questions are important to discuss with your physician. So I'm looking at my list here of things I wanted to mention in a very short time. I think this is the uh, highlights. I wanted to leave enough um, uh, time for you guys to ask questions and enough opportunity for me and my colleagues to address all of your concerns and um, uh, make the biggest uh, uh, impact uh, for every participant today. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Shustov. That was very comprehensive, excellent, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. Um, I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care Services, and then, um, um, and then we're going to do some polling, and then we're going to take questions. So I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm uh, an oncology social worker. I'm Director of Education and Training with Cancer Care. 
And I'm just going to talk about briefly Cancer Care's free programs and services. So our programs are free and they're national. And actually, um, we have a hope line that you can call. That number and the website will be given to all of you when you get your evaluations. Um, so you'll have all that information. I think you've all gotten it actually before you even win the program today. Um, and what that allows you to do is that you can call our hope line or or you can post a question on our website, and you can um, speak to one of our oncology social workers about a question or concern you may have. Um, also, we do offer online support groups on all different for all different types of cancers, all different types of situations, um, all for caregivers, for young adults, older adults. So really, quite a spectrum of uh, people that we're able to help in different types of cancers as well, and and also. Um, and different types of lymphoma. Um, we also offer a service called case management, which means that we can connect you to services um, that you need in your community. So, and we not only do that, um, not just give you a phone number to call, but we actually, we walk you to be sure you get there and you get the services you need. And if you don't, then we follow up with you until you get what you need. Um, we, of course, offer many of these education workshops, and we also have some publications as well, and many other services that you can access either from our website or by calling our 800 number. With that being said, now we are going to, before we take questions, we have two polling questions that we want to ask you um, uh, at the um, end of this program. It's not quite over, actually, but just uh, at the end of the presentations. And so um, the, the, uh, there, and there are two of them. And I'm just going to, um, I'll just take about a minute to answer them. And the first question for all of you who are live streaming, as a result of this workshop, I am more aware of all the new treatment approaches for peripheral T-cell lymphoma. And you have the option of yes or no. And then there is a four, one other question that we're going to ask you. As a result of this workshop, I have learned guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments to get the most out of them. And, and please check all that apply. So scheduled my telehealth medicine appointment, prepared a list of my important questions ahead of my telehealth telemedicine appointment. Be sure I have phone, computer tel set up for my telehealth telemedicine appointment. All of the above, you can just check the ones that apply. And thank you. And we do this really just to get a sense of um, where what you've learned, where you are now um, uh, from listening to all the different speakers. And now we do have time for questions. I'm going to ask Sonia to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. So um, Sonia is going to explain to you how to queue up for questions. Some of you have already queued up for questions, but I'm going to have Sonia explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. And uh, so, Sonia. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star then 1. We have a question for our online participants. Um, so, and this one um, for Dr. Ansel. Um, how often should patients be tested and retested um, in terms of frequent testing? Um, uh, could you address that, that question? 
Yeah, so that's a good question. And the uh, main things is it depends where in the course of treatment you are. So if this is your initial front uh, first line treatment, every time you come in for treatment, you clearly will be uh, have your labs tested. And possibly um, once at least during your initial treatment, you'll have a repeat imaging study. And then at the end of the initial treatment, you'll have another imaging study, often a PET scan. That's really important to make sure that you're responding as expected, and hopefully at the end of treatment, you've achieved what we call a complete metabolic response on a PET scan or complete remission, so that one can then make plans to potentially stop treatment or consolidate treatment with a stem cell approach or whatever the thought might be. The second place where there's ongoing observation is if uh, if you're on treatment that's in second line or subsequent, and then you may be getting treatment uh, kind of on more of a longer-term process, as you've been hearing us talk about. And uh, that, then again, is important that lab work is done with every round of treatment to make sure you're tolerating treatment well, but that intermittently imaging studies and a full physical exam is necessary to make sure that the treatment is benefiting you. For the final group of people would be the people that have finished all treatment are off therapy and are being checked. That is typically done about every three months in the beginning and then subsequently every six months and maybe eventually only once a year. And initially, the the follow-up is keeping a close eye that the cancer does not come back. And later on, the follow-up is focused more on long-term side effects and complications of the treatment you might have had before. And so the testing may change a little bit Earlier on, there's more imaging. Later on, there's more kind of uh, what we call survivorship and testing to make sure that you're in good health and that nothing else is going on. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Horace, a question for you. Um, So in terms of COVID, could you comment on just how much that has impacted treatment or treatment visits or if you could say something about that? Yeah. And I think a lot of it is geographic. You know, I'm in New York City, so um, between the end of March and beginning of May, um, all we were doing was COVID management largely in the hospital. So anyone who was on treatment that had to come for treatment, we were seeing everyone else was either seeing remote, we were seeing remotely or delayed. I think now things have kind of come back to a, uh, at least a temporary new normal. Um, the risks of coming in right now in New York are, are actually quite low. So people who we haven't seen in a while who are coming in for follow-up or treatment, they're functioning on a normal basis. For people who are traveling to see us from states um, where there are higher risks, who would have to quarantine and things like that, most of those visits are being done remotely or deferred. So I think we're kind of taking on a case-by-case basis, um, but nothing like the impact it was in in the spring. And and what we're trying to do now is make a judgment. What's the value of coming in person? What's the risk to that person? And is this a window where we could get you in and, and check you out and not have to see you again for six months if if things really increase again over the winter, like like we fear. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Because um, I know that's on everyone's mind, and that's excellent. How very helpful. Um, does anyone else want to add to that? Okay. Um, and then um, um, another um, question from one of our online participants. Um, um, in terms of just trying to find literature on PTCL on Google, how can I make sure I am up to date with the research going on? Um, Dr. Shustov, could you address that question? How do how do I get information about? Of course, participating in the program today is a good idea, but there are many other ways. And so, Dr. Um, Shustov, if you could address that. 
Sure. Um, first of all, I'll say that um, there are benefits, but there are also significant uh, dangers even uh, doing um, search on Google uh, about cancer in general or um, lymphomas in particular, because there are so many things there that could be misinterpreted or the search can take you into direction that might not be pertaining to your particular situation. So I always advise my patients and give them a list of resources that I believe uh, is the most relevant, first of all, to lymphomas and is uh, uh, geared towards the patient understanding rather than just um, uh, popular science or uh, super uh, scientifically driven. So I give patients a list of um, specific foundations, and I just named some of them, Lymphoma Research Foundation, Leukemia Lymphoma Society, and TISA Leukemia Lymphoma Foundation. But also remember that the National Cancer Institute has a fantastic uh, resource, fantastic site for patients. You just have to go to nci.gov and go for patient resources. And from there, and those uh, foundations that I named to you, uh, it will direct you for um, other really reliable and appropriate sources of information. So uh, please be very careful with Google. I have a lot of patients who come very scared or um, uh, have um, uh, read about completely unrelated uh, conditions, and uh, every patient's is, uh, patient situation is very unique, and it's uh, really um, uh, risky to um, uh, go into the channel that uh, describes something unrelated uh, to your particular scenario and, um, and then um, create a lot of anxiety. So Lymphoma Research Foundation, Leukemia Lymphoma Society, uh, NCI, those are very reliable and patient-oriented uh, organization and sources. And I'm sure Dr. Masner will tell you uh, how to get uh, through the cancer care uh, information channel. Uh, those would be, in my opinion, the most preferred ways of learning about your lymphoma. Oh, that's excellent, Dr. Shostov. And actually, all of you are going to get a, an evaluation of the program after this workshop um, on SurveyMonkey. And actually, or some of you who've, who are doing this by paper will get a paper um, evaluation. But in there, it will be not just an evaluation. It will also give you all these resources, and certainly the resources that Dr. Shostov mentioned, Lymphoma Research Foundation, Leukemia Lymphoma Society. These are wonderful organizations to get credible information, and that's really important. Forget about Google is what we're saying. Use the um, these organizations that really specialize and really have the most up-to-date information for you, in addition to your healthcare teams. That's really important, of course. Um, so um, thank you. Um, and then this question um, for uh, Dr. Ansel. I live in a small rural area, and our center does not specialize in PTCL. Could I see any lymphoma doctor? Could you address this, Dr. Ansel, please? Um, I would, yes, I think it's a it's a good question. In general, I think it's uh, really important to to get a good opinion from somebody who's very knowledgeable in these uncommon diseases. So you heard us say there are lots of different types. You heard us say they're quite rare, and so uh, I think that it's very beneficial to partner along with your local doctor, but also with an expert. And so sometimes getting a, an opinion, some guidance about where to go, and then partnering up with your local oncologist to help with, uh, with the treatment could be very beneficial. Um, the reason is just because I think sometimes uh, treatments, there are subtleties and, and, and strategies that need to be different, and the whole idea is to get the best result possible. So I, I think it's always a good idea to get an additional opinion, particularly if the uh, oncologist treating you might not have seen your particular kind of lymphoma much before. 
So thank you. Anyone else want to add to that? Okay. Well, I have to say this has been an extraordinary call. Um, just wonderful, well, wonderful speakers, wonderful participants asking such great questions. Um, we could go on probably for another hour, but we said this would be an hour program, and so that um, I'm going to try to wrap this up. I want to thank all of you, our speakers, our wonderful participants. Um, just really, um, it really makes such a difference. This is a very important uh, program today, and um, we certainly hope to offer this workshop again in the future. Um, I also just want to review with you that um, that we did mention specific organizations that you can go to to get information, Leukemia Lymphoma Society and Lymphoma Research Foundation, and you'll be getting that information from us. And in addition, um, uh, listing just all the different services that cancer care provides. Most importantly, we would not want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with uh, a peripheral T-cell lymphoma or any type of lymphoma or any type of cancer. We want you to now know that you're part of a really large community of support of credible resources that you can get help from. And particularly during this time of... of um, of the um, of COVID and uh, people social people really you know social isolation feeling much greater social isolation than ever before people do feel alone and it's normal to feel alone of course at times but I also want you to know that there are, are resources out there for you actually even 24 hours a day there are some centers that some of these nonprofits that are open 24 hours a day some during business hours however there's an and your own healthcare team always finding out from them because often problems happen, questions happen for you at night or during the weekend. Who do you contact at night and during the weekend if you have a question for them as well? Um, so that's just, we want you to be armed with this information. So even in those moments when you are feeling alone, which could be frequent or depending on who you are, what your situation is, where you live, nevertheless, it's okay, but we want you to know that there are people out there to support you and to help you. And so I hope you'll take that away from today's program as well. I want to thank you all for your participation on today's program, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.